Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly roundup of what's been happening in the world of EBM. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor at the BMJ. And as always, I'm joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Carl Hennigan and Helen McDonald. Carl, I'm going to go to you first today. Yeah, hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I'm Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine and Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. And you're a GP? Yes, and a GP. You keep reminding me of that on the weekends. It's very important. <laughs> <laughs> Relevant for what we're talking about. And Helen, can you introduce yourself? I'm Helen McDonald. I'm the UK Research Editor for the BMJ and I'm a resting GP. A resting GP. <laughs> In repose. So the point about GPs is really important and we're going to hear from a listener later on about that. Um, and as always, we want to hear from you. So as we're going through this, if there are anything that we say, Carl or Helen or I, um, that you you want to pick up on, then please do let us know. Go to bmj.com slash podcasts where you can find out how to get in touch. Right. Let's get into the, the podcast proper. Each week we're doing a start and a stop. So guys, what have we got this week? What do we want to start doing? Well, actually, uh, we're not going to start. So I'm starting with stopping something. <laughs> As always. <laughs> we're just always telling people to stop. Just to make it a bit more complex. We've had a, an article that was published in the BMJ on the chronic use of tramadol after acute pain episode. And we selected this for our EBM verdict series. This is a series where we only select the research where we think you can start doing something or stop doing something. And what this paper does is it's a cohort study based in America, about 400,000 patients who were filled a discharge prescription for one or more opioids associated with one or 20 different operations. So they were all people that had, had an operation? They'd all had an operation and they'd all had some post-operative uh, pain relief of opioids. And what this paper shows is asked the question about was, if you take it post-op, which treatments are more likely to lead to you filling in more prescriptions in the future? You know, there's a huge problem with dependence. And what they showed in here, that actually tramadol, although it was only used in about 4% of the cases, that it was actually much more likely to lead to you filling in more prescriptions in the future. And uh, receipt of tramadol alone was associated with a 6% increase in the risk of additional opioid use relative to people receiving other short-acting opioids. So basically the paper is quite a nice paper, but asking a question about what opioid should you choose after surgery? So saying not tramadol, is it telling you to start using something instead? Yeah, well, what the paper does, and this is what the analysis in the EBM verdict is, and you could go to uh, Georgia Richards, who, who actually wrote this verdict, who could give us uh, a better understanding of why. But she says that basically uh, short-acting opioids in the setting of acute pain are preferable to both long-acting opioids and tramadol when discharging patients after elective surgery. Georgia Richards. I'm a doctoral researcher at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford and I'm uh, investigating the prescribing of opioids as part of my PhD. So a new cohort study was published in the BMJ titled Chronic Use of Tramadol After Acute Pain Episode. So I decided to uh, investigate this cohort study um, because of the interest and the issues around the U.S. opioid crisis, which is killing around 130 Americans each day. 
Um, and this um, opioid crisis first started with the increase in the number of opioids that are being prescribed, um, a crackdown on how they were being prescribed, which subsequently led to the transition of illicit or street use of opioids. And a key question in the opioid crisis is understanding when people were first exposed to opioids and if this first exposure then went led to the long-term use of opioids. Um, so this cohort study published in the BMJ addresses this question by following up a cohort of nearly half a million patients after elective surgery. So I first started looking at um, the drug that this particular study was investigating, which is tramadol. And tramadol is a weak opioid that is considered to be safer than some other opioids that we use. Um, so I first looked at the, opioid, the pharmacology of tramadol, um, which has wide variation in how people metabolize the drug. And it also has a dual um, pharmacological property, which it can be an opioid and it can also have antidepressant-like effects. Um, so because this complexity around the pharmacology, um, there are various side effects um, of tramadol, which can either cause a lot of harm for some people, while others may have some benefits. So after synthesizing that evidence, I looked at the evidence on the effectiveness and safety of tramadol by looking at a Cochrane review. And this Cochrane review found weak and low evidence, um, mainly due to publication bias, um, and also found that there were high rates of adverse events. The third thing I did was look at the data presented in the article, um, which presented adjusted risk ratios. And these risk ratios um, were looking at the risk of long-term use, but they also can sometimes amplify the findings in a study. So the fourth thing I did was I calculated the number needed to harm, which is a useful um, calculation to do when comparing different types of treatments. So I found that for every 272 people that receive a discharge prescription for tramadol, one will continue to be using that opioid uh, for 90 or more days. But when I did the number needed to harm for people using long-acting opioids, this was significantly lower with every 31 people prescribed a discharge pre prescription of long-acting opioids would continue to be using long-acting opioids for 90 or more days. My conclusion is that doctors should avoid using tramadol and should use other short-acting opioids when prescribing for post-operative pain. But also long-acting opioids and long-term use of opioids should be avoided for post-operative pain, as pain is usually um, short-lived and acute following surgery. So for countries like the US and the UK, I'm confident that my verdict, um, I'm confident in my verdict because doctors have access to alternative short-acting opioids like uh, short-acting oxycodone. Uh, but countries like India and some parts of Africa who have no other alternatives um, for pain medicine, uh, tramadol, stopping using tramadol would not be a realistic option. Uh, but in medicine, there's always uncertainty and um, for doctors that practice evidence-based medicine, they'd also need to account for the values of the patient and use their own clinical expertise in addition to the evidence when making the decision to prescribe tramadol. It was quite interesting because I hadn't realised until I read this paper in George's summary that um, tramadol is thought to work slightly differently to some other opioids and those differences 
theoretically might lead it to have less adverse effects. So they mentioned that perhaps there's less constipation or depression or overdose and addiction was one of the things that it was meant that was mentioned um, where tramadol might have an advantage over some other drugs. So this it was interesting to see this paper directly addressing uh, that issue. It's another case of where that sort of th- theoretical thing doesn't actually work out in, in the real world. Well, I think what we're doing is starting to realise we use lots of different painkillers in the opioid classes and they're all slightly different. And I learnt from this paper as well about the pharmacological mechanisms. The bioavailability of the active metabolite actually varies hugely between individuals from 3% among people who are poor metabolizers to 86% among those who are extensive metabolizers. So that means you get a huge variation in, in how much the active opioid is in your system. So no wonder some people react in different ways. And what the problem is, is that with tramadol, is it seems to be more associated with dependency. But actually, do you get better pain relief? It doesn't seem so. Mm. And do you think we can trust that finding? So this was a retrospective database study. Well, it's very difficult to... So the first thing is, what type of evidence would you want? Because you're saying, would you want a randomised controlled trial? The problem is when you're talking about harms, you have to get ethical clearance to Mm. say we're going to give somebody that actually might lead to prolonged dependence. So actually what I would like to see now is somebody out there going, I'm going to do the systematic review to see how many other studies are like this. So I think that's important to set these in context of systematic reviews to see if this result's replicable. Can I also say about this paper, which I found... I don't think (laughs) I am going to do. What I found really interesting is that they did this. They called Box 1 summarises the basic information about tramadol, and they called it the tramadol facts facts. Yes, it has some very interesting facts in as well. It's like on the train on the way here. Yeah, I'm not... Which... What's your favourite I'm now lost for words because uh, immediately, yeah, you're going to have to go to Helen here because she picked out her favourite... Go on, what's your favourite fact? Well, I, I did not know that uh, tramadol has an off-label use as a medicine to prevent premature ejaculation. Neither did I. But actually, there's a systematic review of, and I think this is, and I'm taking this off the top of my head, that SSRIs have an effect in terms of premature ejaculation. So you can look that up. It's on PubMed. And I have actually, as an in-hours doctor, actually had a patient turn up to request it based on going on PubMed. So I'm all for patients looking up evidence and bring it to see me when I'm a doctor. But coming back to the point, I love this fast facts. BMJ should do more of it. <laughs> I was looking at Helen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that, 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 those kind of things are really interesting. I mean, that's going to stick in my head now. You're not going to forget about tramadol and this paper now that you know. It's an off-label use. Can we just <laughs> stress? That's <laughs> why so I was reluctant to mention it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's there. It's in the fast facts. You can go and uh, anyone who can read that now. Great. So there's something to stop doing, which is giving tramadol after surgery. Do we have a start doing? Well, the other piece that that Carl and I both pulled out this week, actually, was... Um, a systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies, which was published in the BMJ, looking at the prevalence of uh, medical harm uh, across the spectrum of healthcare settings from primary care into general hospitals and into very specialised and interventional settings like the intensive care unit. Just at our editorial meeting today, people have been reading that. It's doing way better than everything else. 
it's obviously something that uh, the doctors really care about. Well, look, uh, firstly, I have to declare a competing interest. Um, I know the first author of this, Maria Panagiotti, and we worked together in the NHR School of Primary Care as part of the Evidence Synthesis Working Group. So I know uh, Maria, and I know this research, and I've looked at it, and it's very interesting. But I think what this does is set off our thought process about we should be thinking about... Do you think you should tell us the results first? Oh, we could do that. I'm late. I'm getting there. Let me get there. Okay. I'm being forced into pressurised here, aren't they? Okay. Well, what they you did. You pushed is... me to summarise things in two minutes very succinctly and clearly, and I want you to. All right. In 60 it. seconds. <laughs> 70 studies involving 337,025 patients were included in the meta analysis. The pool prevalence for preventable patient harm was 6%. So that means they found that harms could be prevented around about well, one in 20 times, just under. A pool proportion of 12% of preventable patient harm was severe or led to death. In so that's 12% of that 6%. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite a, quite a significant amount, is severe and is important. Within that, they said that drugs were formed a significant and other treatments accounted for the largest proportion of preventable patient harm and patient harm was more prevalent in advanced specialties, intensive care or surgeries. There are some bits, and I've got about 12 seconds left to say about this research, two things that come to mind. The first is to say there seems to be much more research done in settings like hospitals, 45 studies versus primary care, only three studies, that's miserable, so there's a problem of where we're doing this research. And I guess there are always important confounders that we might ask about in this research is to say in certain settings like intensive care, maybe there actually are just more harms in that and they're looking at it more intensely. So there is possibly a reporting bias element to this. Mm. Now that I've asked you about the numbers, Carl, actually, I sort of agreed with your first statement that the numbers didn't hugely matter in this case because there probably is quite a substantial amount of harm going on and about half of it is preventable. And it was quite interesting. Um, we were talking on our way in about the fact that if you saw those kinds of results linked to a drug, if a drug created um, that sort of improvement or an intervention created that kind of improvement in healthcare, people would be very interested in it. Well, yeah, I think that's really important. Um, that Elizabeth Mahasi in the news article says, preventable harm affects around one in 20 patients in medical care, with around 12% of those dying or becoming permanently disabled as a result. Imagine if I turned that round and said there's a new intervention that improves healthcare, one in 20 patients, and actually reduces your risk of death by 12%. Everybody would be going, oh, this is a really important intervention. Let's get this out there in the NHS. And I think your point, Duncan, is, is there sufficient evidence and information for us to understand the extent of the problem? The answer to that is no. Are we looking at that in a comprehensive way that actually we should be doing? The answer is no. And if we stopped thinking about all these innovations and all these news ways and fancy where we'll get to ways of looking at healthcare and developing new technologies and drugs and just stopped and said for the next three to five years, we're going to focus on harms and reducing harms, would we make significant inroads? I think the answer is yes, and we could make a difference to healthcare. It seems to me very much like a a high systems level, this kind of research needs to be carefully considered and taken pretty, pretty seriously. I'd like to know what strategies might exist. Yeah, and I also think it should be not just policy, it should be a significant effect across funders who go, 
actually, we're seriously taking and putting a lot of research funding into reducing avoidable harms. And actually, we're having streams and trying to integrate. And there has been some bits there, but it just seems to be an area that is just not sexy. It's not like we're creating a new genetic treatment tomorrow. We're studying harms. Oh, yeah. But actually, it's a really important bit of healthcare. And I think if we could start to think systematically about this, we get to a point where we would say, actually, all of the journey through healthcare, we have to our forefront evidence that helps us think about if we're doing something, we have harms in our mind all the time. Another thing about uh, policymakers cropped up at EBM Live. So last week we were at the EBM Live conference and um, one of the keynote speakers, a lady called Andrea Trico, spoke about work that her organisation is doing, reviews, so searches, systematic reviews, policy reviews out in Canada to try and answer some of those questions that policymakers might have. My name is Andrea Trico. I'm a scientist at the Lee Cushing Knowledge Institute of St. Michael's Hospital, which is part of Unity Health Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm also an associate professor at the Dalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. One of the, the people asking questions at the end of your session described your project as gargantuan. Um, tell, us, uh, tell us broadly a little bit about the project that you were talking to the audience about today. So this is a project that is funded by our national funding body, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and it's called the Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research. So the objective is to, to co-create research and being able to answer questions that are being posed by knowledge users. Patients, we're talking about healthcare providers and policymakers, those are the three main buckets. Um, and we answer the queries that are generated by our knowledge users using evidence and provide them with information just in time for their decision-making needs. And that sounds wonderful. And, and you think, of course it should be like this. Um, but it's not always like this in research. And I'm really interested to know if you go all the way back to the start, how did you become interested in this kind of area? What was your sort of journey into evidence-based medicine? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so I, I did my PhD with Dr. David Moore, so came very much from a methodologist and um, a systematic review type of background. And then um, I ended up becoming a scientist and working closely with Dr. Sharon Strauss, who does a lot of knowledge translation and implementation science. Um, and so I kind of combined this methods, kind of methodologist, purist, um, with trying to make sure every project that I do is for a purpose and is relevant and is for a knowledge user. So it just kind of melded over time um, and it started mostly with policymakers. So I received a large grant with some others, I'm including Sharon and David actually, <laughs> um, to do this kind of thing, but with Health Canada and with our Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies in Health in some of the provinces. So it was just very focused on policymakers and was very focused on drugs so looking at drug safety and effectiveness so that's how it started um, in 2011 and then as things went on um, we started getting more involved with patient engagement and patient-oriented research um, so then we were quite fortunate to get this strategic the strategy for patient-oriented research grant where not only do we collaborate and co-create with policymakers, but also with healthcare providers and also with patients and how easy is it to be involved in that kind of work to be working 
in a really multidisciplinary way in research because it feels like that that's quite unusual. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think as researchers, typically we run the research agenda and we come up with the topics and oftentimes it's curiosity driven and it's just, oh, like this might be something, an interesting topic for us to work on. Um, and whereas the Spore Evidence Alliance, the topics actually come from our knowledge users. So the whole agenda is driven by them. And then we just use the most methodologically rigorous ways that we can to answer their questions. Um, I personally do it because I believe that it makes research more relevant. I believe it reduces research waste and hopefully is more helpful but it does take more time definitely and you have to navigate a lot between what they want versus what the research might say um, and you also have to you have to have really strong negotiating skills what do you have to negotiate <laughs> everything so you have to negotiate the topic so the the uh, kind of unicorn project is one that is really relevant and is really going to be important to that knowledge user, but then also get you into the BMJ, right? It does happen. So we published um, a systematic review and network meta-analysis last year um, uh, on the herpes zoster shingles vaccine in the BMJ. Um, and that was commissioned by the Public Health Agency of Canada. So this was an important policy question. So they were trying to decide between two vaccines uh, in Canada um, and so we did that project for them and we're, we're commissioned by them through um, another project through the Drug Safety and Effectiveness Network which is similar in concept to the one that I'm talking about today and then we got it published in one of the big five um, that does not happen very often it's happened you know a handful of times but that's an academic's dream or maybe not every academic's dream but my dream is to like do something that's really relevant and important is going to help improve patient care in Canada but then also fulfill my academic appointment because I'm affiliated with the university and I have to move up the rank and get into a really amazing journal like the BMJ. So something you mentioned is important in your talk was this difference of um, evidence and development being sort of grassroots upwards rather than the other way around. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, so I think I was talking about with Indigenous populations. I think that was um, what I was talking about when I mentioned that. So, um, it, so in Canada, um, we have we've been um, there's been a lot of history between Indigenous populations um, and others. Um, so it's been hard to do research together because there's been some trust issues, as there very well should be, because a lot of there were a lot of mistakes made in the past. Uh, and so when we're working with indigenous populations, we have to be really careful and we have to make sure that we're doing it properly and doing it right and answering things that are useful to them and sharing the results with them. Um, and I don't know what's important to their populations because I'm not indigenous and I don't live there and I don't know the context. I really don't know anything. Um, I just know the research methods, right? So I'm working closely with um, people who are experts and are indigenous and work closely with those populations and have the level of trust that they can go into those communities and they can work with them to submit some questions to the Spore Evidence Alliance that we can help answer using rigorous research methods. Um, so that way it's kind of their questions are coming from them versus me going in there and saying like, oh, I think this is a problem and that's a problem. To them, it may not be a problem at all. And I don't know what 
the issues are, right? So I want to answer things that are important to them. Um, and as an outsider, I just can't go in there and then they're going to trust me all of a sudden. They don't know who I am, right? So that's why I have to depend on my network and my collaborators, my colleagues. I think um, the theme of of trust that you mentioned and also time was really interesting because uh, I notice um, the BMJ, for example, has a campaign to involve um, partner with patients in the public. And I think it's interesting seeing how that plays out and how um, it's difficult to achieve that suddenly. Do you have any advice for people who either as policymakers or as clinicians or as researchers are setting out on that journey to want to work together more closely? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that you can do um, to try to make that happen. And um, I know I basically made every mistake that you could make when it comes to patient engagement. So and I'll be the first to admit that. <laughs> um, one thing would be if you have a course on it, I think because we can all learn how to do it and the proper way to do it would be my number first thing that I would say would be take a course on it. Um, and then also you have to budget a lot more time for that. You may have to budget money because it's only fair for patients to be compensated for their time that they're spending on your projects. Um, you have to engage with patients from the very beginning of the project. So um, otherwise it kind of feels tokenistic, like you're just adding them on at the end because you needed a checkbox that you needed a patient to be involved. So you have to be very mindful. You have to watch the language that you use. You want to be welcoming. Um, and sometimes it takes years for that trusting relationship to develop and it could take one second to destroy that relationship, right? So years to build and one second to destroy it. And can you tell us a bit more about uh, the funding of this type of work? How, how easy is that? Because it feels sometimes like money is quite siloed in different areas. Like if you want to do a systematic review, there's some money over here. Or if you want to do some patient um, engagement or partnership, perhaps you can get some money over there. This project is quite different in its setup. How, how have you been able to find people to fund this? <laughs> so we're lucky in that the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, they put out the call to do exactly what we're doing. So they did a lot of consultations with the government, government and other stakeholders. Um, and they found that this initiative was required um, and it's all part of the strategy for patient-oriented research. So the Canadian government is inv investing millions and millions of dollars in this. So we were just lucky to be the ones chosen to carry this out and conduct this work and um, it's really great that we have this opportunity to build it and then also to learn and, and for it to grow. How do you think initiatives like this will shape evidence-based medicine going forward? Will, will everything be set up like this 10 years <laughs> from now or how do you see it developing? I mean, I hope so. It's been very rewarding in that it's, I feel like my research is more relevant and I think it's more useful when I work closely with the knowledge user and when it's their priority and their question. And um, I, it's, it's lovely to work with patients. You get to meet different people. You get exposed to different ideas. I strongly believe in diversity. Um, and so it does um, strengthen the team. Um, but sometimes, you know, it will take more time and it may take cost more as well um, so you just have to be cognizant of that but know that the reward is great in the end I think it's interesting we're starting to move into a world and this is an interesting area I talk a lot about this if I go back 15 20 years ago we would publish a piece of research in a journal and there would be an editorial and that would be it 
and I'd probably live off it for about a year if it was in the BMJ. Now you do that and you go, well, actually, that's just a bit of a small slice of the pie. And actually, we do have to think about our research and our outputs. How do we put them in formats that actually sometimes you think this trial needs to be summarized with the systematic review? Then it has to be put in a policy brief and we have to make it understandable for policy, for practice, for patients. So there's a much bigger journey, if you like, to what we, the dissemination. And researchers are starting to wake up to this. And then people like Andrew Trico are saying, look, my job is sometimes to be really fast and rapid and accept there are some questions over the internal validity. And that's OK, because expediency is important when you've got to make decisions. So, as I said at the beginning, uh, talking about GPs is important, and we've had a listener get in touch with us who has something to say about the way we talk about GPs. Hi, my name is Hugh Alberti. I'm an intelligent GP, GP partner in inner city Middlesbrough, but also the head of GP teaching at Newcastle Medical School. I, uh, I on purpose, describe myself as an intelligent GP because like Carl said of himself uh, in a recent podcast, I used to describe myself as a simple GP and therefore I like things presented simply. However, research has shown that medical students think of GP and GP as a career as a non-intellectually stimulating career and do not think of GPs as being academic. I strongly feel and could do a Carl type rant here that if academic GPs like myself and like Carl describe ourselves as simple, we are doing ourselves a disservice and putting off uh, intelligent uh, young people from following GP as a career. And let's acknowledge the fact that actually to be able to deal with any type of problem coming in every 10 to 15 minutes, we have to be highly intelligent uh, and it is a fascinating and intellectually stimulating career and actually all GPs are highly academic. Thanks for listening to my rant. So I think we should just say that every, both Carl and I are now smirking. <laughs> and it was obviously Carl's fault. He obviously said something. I'm slightly stunned into silence. Well, I apologise if I try to say uh, GPs are simple. That probably wasn't the case. But look, I, I, the point is is a great point. Um, the reason I went into general practice, actually, I, I did it as a, as, a, as a house officer in the old days, in the old money of healthcare. Going back 20 years, I worked in a practice in Bowman Street where I had three months as my first ever job in medicine. And the first patient who came in to see me was 92 years old, and I thought, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then the next patient that came in was six day old, day old, and I thought, wow, I really am in deep trouble here. And it was great because I had these GPs around me who really knew what they were doing with experience and were intelligent and were intellectual. And I guess what it is, is I'm still on that journey to that, that place. And uh, the hardest thing, I think, is to keep what we do simple. But I'm right on board. And I think the other thing I'd say is, from a perspective of evidence-based medicine, what we do in general practice is great with its links to evidence-based medicine. And, and I'll tell you why. We do a lot of things where I get involved in areas. That, a good one will be IVF. And in IVF, 
we'll go in there and we've looked at the evidence and we've published and look at the quality of the evidence on the websites and we'll go into a space where all of these specialist doctors will go, well, look, you're just a GP. And I go, well, hey, hold on a minute. When all these women and partners turn up, the first port of call they come is to primary care to speak to general practitioners about these issues. And therefore, we have to know about these conditions and we have to know about the evidence. But also what we do know, which I think is the intellectual bit, is thinking about how they all connect together. So we don't look at isolated disease, we look across the board. So I'm totally with the commentary. I apologise sometimes for trying to say uh, simple, but I think that reflects an idea that I try to think the hardest thing is to keep things simple and straightforward. But I think picking up on what you say there, simple doesn't necessarily mean bad. It just means that in some cases you do need to know the top line because it isn't getting into the weeds about about something is not actually helpful at that point if you're looking at someone. Well, I think it's, there's also a difference between being a simple GP versus wanting simple information and personally my preference would be that the information is simple in the sense that it is written in plain English or I hear it in plain English because that is the easiest way to share it with someone that comes to see you to have a conversation with so I would say that um, we need simple information but GPs are not simple. <laughs> That's a nice summing up. Alexa, I've got low back pain. What do you advise? I don't have any tips for that yet, but there are a lot of topics I do know about. Try asking me for tips about gardening, fashion, art, guitar, relaxation or backpacking. Alexa, I want to know if I should see my doctor about back pain. Here's something I found from the article Tension Myositis Syndrome on Wikipedia. Patients typically see their doctor when the pain is at its worst and pain chart scores statistically improve over time even if left untreated. Most people recover from an episode of back pain within weeks without any medical intervention at all. I know you might like this, but apparently it's okay. Although we think we're intelligent and intellectual, we are going to be replaced, apparently, by Alexa tells us Helen Salisbury. Alexa, can you do my job for me in the views and reviews? And I thought this was a fascinating piece. Alexa is like one of these systems. It's from Amazon, isn't it? That yeah. Actually, you talk at it. It's You've got these systems on your phone and Google have got them where you speak into it and it gives you a response. And in doing that... Uh, Alexa has partnered with the NHS to produce appropriate responses. And I met recently Helen, and the rant was from Helen, was that actually all pathways lead to a response of seek advice from a qualified medical professional, i.e. see your GP. And that's what all of these uh, systems, and this is something that Matt Hancock is pushing, the idea that Alexa is going to be the answer to all the NHS problems. But actually what they do is things like, as Helen says here, if I have a neck lump NHS into the search engine, it takes you to a site about thyroid cancer. Well, that's immediately going to result in you turning up at your general practitioner again. So none of these systems can adequately reinsure you and rule out disease. So it's not clear to me why they're there and what problem are they actually there to replace. But they're certainly not going to replace GPs. They're going to actually make intelligent GPs even more busy. I guess the point that it raises is what problem is the technology trying to solve? If the problem is GPs have got too much work to do, 
what's the best evidence that we have on the ways to do that? If the problem is that people want a more convenient way to get medical advice that doesn't involve having an appointment face to face, uh, what are the most evidence based ways to do that? Well, let's say we know that people are searching the Internet for yeah. healthcare advice. Significant proportion of uh, searches on the Internet are for healthcare. And most so people is Alexa are, better than that? Well, the, the first thing is that most people who own Alexa, I assume, own a computer and can use their fingers to type in and look on the Internet. So it's actually just a, a very, what, what I guess is it's trying to say, go to the NHS advice. But most algorithms end up in a situation where you can't rule out anything serious. And a good example, as I always say, is if you get a child under five, with a fever, all algorithms will end up with speak to a medical professional. You just can't rule out with miss that serious condition and that one in a hundred child that you want to see. Mm. And presumably, given it's a commercial uh, relationship, you know, Amazon, who are in Alexa, will not want to be uh, giving advice that could end up with a child dying or something, they're going to always default to that. Well, I think that's where it starts to get worrying. You think, well, actually, then there's a connection to commercialization. It's not only here's a bit of advice and here's actually what you might be able to buy on Amazon for yourself tomorrow. If you've got a headache, here's the advice and here's the sales pitch. And that's where it starts to get deeply concerning because how can they be disconnected in a way? They're not. Yeah. I've got another two-minute one. Go on. Is this is a, a rant? Um, People this is are waiting for your of, rant. This is not a rant yet, but it will be a rant coming to you sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Helen Actabit schooled me in how to say this. Aripiprazole. Aripiprazole. You see, it says it much better than me. So one of the things is, uh, this is a, a drug used in uh, mental health, and it's just gone off patent in 2015. Sales were $7 billion before this. But what they've done, is the company has brought this as a drug and a device, and it's a technology-enhanced drug, and it's come as a new approval. And one of this is a ruse to extend the patent life. Evergreening. Evergreening is the term. And it's a really interesting idea is these ruses that say, well, actually, that's gone off patent. We're not going to make any money, but here's a new one that comes to you. And this review looked at the type of evidence that's coming for these new... So, sorry, can you say how that works? So, aripiprazole is a drug, and it's been on patent, and now it's running out. Yes. And the evergreening is taking place because they, the company are now turning it into a device. Well, they're combining this antipsychotic with an embedded sensor, Abilify My Sight. So, the way those work is patents are weird. They don't just patent a drug that then can be used for anything the patents go on on yeah. indication you can do anything you can change a slight molecule in the drug so we've seen this isomers of drugs and so you'll get two different types of the same drug and say here's a new one so the addition of the sensor extends the patent no what it means is it doesn't extend you reapply for a new patent oh. and you go back to the fda for a new license and a new indication for it in the same conditions but it's a new drug in effect. And then you've got another 20 years to make profit. This is what's interesting is you would expect to see a randomized controlled trial. There were none. No with no comparative studies. And they only found three non-comparative uncontrolled cohorts that actually said that's what we used for this to be approved. 
And what happened is then they looked at all the media and all the media were saying, here's an amazing treatment. It's new. It's beneficial. And they're going, well, how can you draw that inference? So it's been approved. It's extended the patent. But there are no what we'd expect to see if this was a drug alone. And that's because it's a device? No, that's because it's like an extension. I guess they're mm. saying, well, aripiprazole is basically already approved. You've given us a little bit of a change. We'll approve that change, and here you go. And that is, again, I think this is a new ruse that we're going to see much more of. I think the the concept of evergreen, and I thought it was something to do with gardening when I first heard it, but actually it's a really important issue about extending Sounds so nice, life. doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it's it not a nice thing. Let's evergreen everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's not a, a rant, but uh, listen Soon to be a rant coming to you to near you soon when more technology and drugs do this. Absolutely. Send us your examples. I will do. Not yours, the list. No, send them to our <laughs> journal. We will publish them if you get more of these examples because I think it will introduce costs that are not needed. Very good. Well, that's it for another Talk Evidence. I hope you've enjoyed. If, like Hugh, you want to get in touch and uh, tell Carl and Helen off about their use of language, or you have examples of uh, evergreening, or you've got any questions for us, anything that you would like us to talk about, then please do let us know. Go to bmj.com slash podcasts and you can find out how to get in touch there. That's it. We'll be back soon with some more talk evidence. And we've got uh, some more from Evidence Life for people to listen to as well. Um, those are all available now on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. So if you've got this far and haven't subscribed, you should do so now. But until next month, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thanks. <laughs>